This is the Chakula Podcast, bringing to you all the relevant topical issues and discussions about food in Kenya and beyond. We break down complex topics and dig deeper into ordinary day-to-day happenings touching on food and farming systems, bringing you a holistic, dynamic view on the food we eat. Welcome, I'm your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chakula podcast. Today we'll be having yet a very interesting conversation on decolonization and food. And I'm joined in studio by three interesting individuals. I'll let them introduce themselves. From my right, can, you can go ahead, Joke. I don't think I've ever been called an interesting individual before. <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. Uh, my name is Dr. Njoke Ngomi. I... I'm, I am a multi-interested person. Um, I'm interested in many things. Um, I have deep concerns about many intersecting issues. Um, I work in the arts as well as in healthcare. Um, and, 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 and many things have kind of guided me towards decolonial uh, conversations in general. Um, my main interest began uh, with, with, with conversations about object return, but the wider conversation is much bigger than things being given back to us by the West, even though those things are many and infinite. And, and I think we will be asking about and after them for a long time in the same way that our ancestors have. Um, but decolonization is, is about much more, including what are the things that we want to redeem for ourselves? What are the things that we want to make anew um, and why? Um, and how do we go back to doing things together that we were broken apart from doing before? So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you all today. Thank you so much, Njoki. Good to have you on the show. Over to you, Joe. Hi, guys. My name is Joe Kobothi, uh, curator, production manager of The Elephant. My my interest around this conversation is really, really around decoloniality as an idea, moving from decolonization and what decoloniality means, particularly around how we start having the conversation around space, time, and the human, and the human being among those three things, both as a metaphysical project, but then an epistemological project, but also as how it moves through politics, culture, economics, society, etc. Thank you, Joe. Professor? Yeah, my name is Kimani Njogu. Um, really excited to be here today to have this conversation with two amazing, you know, people. Um, I get into this conversation through the work that I do at Toyza Communications, where we work with arts, culture, and media. Uh, but my, my principal training actually is in linguistics, so issues of language um, as an aspect of, you know, affirming people's rights and people's existence are really, really important for me, um, as well as issues of culture, um, very recently, we had a major, you know, conversation around de- decolonization and cultural heritage, so issues of our heritage, so that whereas um, in the Western context, culture is viewed very positively, in our own context, culture sometimes tends to be undervalued. And here I'm talking about culture as something lived, experienced every day, other than tradition, which is received over time. So uh, that's how I get into the conversation.
Yeah, very interesting insights from the three of you on how you all come into the conversation. And the most interesting thing that Joaquin mentioned is how do we go back to how we used to get things done? And probably just to start off the conversation, how do we decolonize our plates? How do we decolonize our farms? How do we decolonize our kitchens? Given the fact that this is an era of a lot of information outside there and a lot of pressure. Oh, you want me to go first? Yeah, yeah, you can go first. <laughs> or either of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, think, I think maybe the thing to begin by saying is that um, I... Uh, I, and I like the word that Joe used with regard to decoloniality mm-hmm. because it speaks to a state rather than an action. It, it's more like a a value or a 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 mindset, you know, rather than a series of actions that you can check off in a box and then say, "Yeah, you have now achieved decolonization." There's no such thing. In many ways, it's much more of a process. I am not a believer in in that kind of purist idea that it is only by going back to everything that we were doing before perfectly that we will be able to, you know, kind of achieve this state. Um, I feel like if we ask ourselves, what are the things that uh, colonialism and, and, and all of the adjunct extractions and violences um, and abuses, right? Um, and of course, and of course um, things that changed forever. There are people who died that, you know, we will never have them and we will never have their contributions and we are now a different society because of their absence, right? So there are things that we cannot get back. Um, and and there has to be room to mourn that. Um, in many ways, we didn't really mourn that. There was a huge project around, um, you know, first getting independence and, and resting it from the hands of the colonizer. And then after that, it was, okay, so now what do we become uh, without even understanding that even the borders we received, even the names of countries that we had, those were not ours. We did not choose them, right? So there's a lot more going on than even beyond the plate. And, and I think... Um, Maybe we can situate the plate or, or the or the chain of activities that bring us food, right, um, as one place to begin with regard to how do we imbue dignity into these processes for every single African concerned. Because um, if we look at these chains, um, because of the ways they were interrupted by uh, the industrial violence of and intentions of colonialism, um, it was imperative. They took away dignity and they took away agency from black people. Um, and it was imperative that black people were forced to do things in ways that they were not doing them before with very little education, which was not given to them in proper ways, etc. I do think uh, it's, in, it's important to look at what the intentions immediately after independence were. And there were very many very good intentions. And I think maybe Prof is much better place to speak about that, um, especially with the way he's deeply imbued um, historically, and I love listening to him talk about things like that. But there were intentions with regards to when when we were supposed to go back to the farms with all of the problematics of, mm-hmm. of, of our prior, you know, presidents noted and, and acknowledged, right? Including the problematics around land ownership. Um, and problematics is very much a euphemism. Um, there was intention with regard to how are we supposed to farm, how are we supposed to farm well, how are we supposed to farm in ways that brought our families dignity, um, that made us feel good to be able to take part in these activities and have outputs that were going to feed everybody. And so instead of a series of actions that we can say, I now have a decolonized plate, I don't think a decolonized plate is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I think the dignity of the person, of the human being, beginning from the right to to have a full stomach and the right to not be hungry, which is guaranteed in our constitution, 
cycling back all the way to us being proud of being an agricultural nation, but our farmers are struggling. The vast majority of our farmers are smallholder farmers, five acres and below. The vast majority of those are women. Even those women don't have um, access to a title deed. So there's a lot of other things going on yeah. that must be solved in order for a plate to be decolonized. Because we can say, oh, you know, I'm cooking African recipes. You know, I am a decolonized person, but what are the processes that brought you the food that you then cook? What are the stories that you need to learn about this food that has now appeared on your plate? It is before I continue talking too much. Yeah, it's okay. But I had just one question. Can the challenges that our farmers are facing at the production level be really affected by the pressure from multinationals? Mm, that's good, from outside. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. I think that's a good question. I think um, the first thing to, to, to interrogate would be the intention of these multinationals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, people who have been following, you know, the stories of uh, big agriculture globally know that they're, yeah. they're not, you know, their intentions have not been the best. And um, smallholder farmers, not just in Africa, but even in India, um, in a lot of different places, especially in the majority world, um, and especially affecting non, non-white non people, um, these farmers have really seen dust. You know, they have been deeply violated. Uh, there was a... There was an, there were rising numbers of farmer suicides in, in India um, just a little while ago um, and huge protests, ETC. And we cannot, you know, the, the rest of us who may not necessarily have our primary interests in agriculture, we cannot step, sit back and wait for that to be done, farmers to fight a farmer battle yeah. and win it. Then the rest of us will be fine. If this isn't it. And I think maybe the bigger lesson being learned from um, labor, struggles globally is that a labor struggle does not belong to the primary people fighting only a labor struggle is universal mm-hmm. so everyone has to fight with farmers in the same way that everybody has to fight with nurses has to fight with teachers has to fight with healthcare workers who have got on strike um it's an everybody fight it's not just them yeah thank you so much Njoki. i really like what you said on the the labor struggle is not a problem for one person but it's rather universal professor last month you organized a conference on decolonization and there was there was some bit of it that there was a segment of it that people talked about food so back to the first question, back to the question that i had asked how how can we decolonize our plates our kitchens and farms so yes, it is. Um, it's, it's actually the case that we did actually have um, a symposium on decolonization cultural heritage. And there was a special session in which we were looking at um, indigenous food systems. Um, but I want to pick this, you know, from the colonial encounter itself um, to say that if you look at the colon- of, at colonialism, the, there was, of course, the interest in acquiring pieces of land in different parts of the world um, for extraction of natural resources, as well as um, creation of markets for goods processed abroad. And um, of course, Africa uh, was critical in this process because of the amount of land that you found on the continent and the type of resources and cheap labor that um, you found here. But there's one area that quite often we forget, and this is really the cultural component of the colonial encounter, that um, as as Africa was being subdivided, there was also some thinking about the cultural uh, trajectory for Europe. 
So the philosophies of individualism, the philosophies around, you know, uh, belief systems and so forth, and that these needed to be exported, you know, abroad. And so um, in the symposium, it was quite clear that really one of the ways in which we need to think about food security is to go back to how has Africa become a market for um, foods uh, that come from elsewhere? And also to answer the question, how is Africa producing foods that are not necessarily good for Africa? Um, and also how are we catering for needs elsewhere? Because if you look at the colonial encounter, the other thing that came you know, with the cash economy was of course cash crops. Um, and the competition between what we are growing for ourselves and what we are growing for other people. Um, and the extent to which our own food insecurity and the tensions that we have on the plate are really as a result of, um, you know, a perspective, a political, cultural, and economic perspective that is not our perspective, but actually being superimposed on, on us. Um, and, and there is even a much more disturbing phenomenon which, um, which has stepped in most recently. And this is the phenomenon of large-scale land-based investments um, where Africa is expected to grow crops uh, for, for Europe and for North America. And that we are growing those crops not for ourselves, not secure our families, but actually to cater for the needs of those countries. And that those large-scale land-based investments are riding on weaknesses um, of governance on the continent. So, so these ideas, so that even as we talk about the plate, we contextualize the food on the plate in terms of global politics, continental politics, weaknesses in governance and so on, and historicize uh, historicize that. So I think that um, it's a very important conversation. It's, it's really critical. And I think that the process also has to go back to um, the belief and the dignity, giving our people the dignity uh, that truly there is nothing wrong in eating foods that are not contemporary in the sense of Western foods. That there is dignity in eating foods that grow um, um, on our farms, um, and that indeed the they have tested, um, they have been tested in terms of time, and and also to pay attention to the diversity that exists in our communities because our foods are diverse. Um, you know, there are foods that you'll find in West Africa that are also great foods for East Africa and South Africa and so on, and that they have certain capabilities that are not, um, uh, that they can actually withstand, you know, changes, whether these are climate changes and, and so on, because they are, they are grounded. They are grounded in our people. And, and, and finally, to say that food Food is also culture. 
um, it's um, there is always a story around food um, and where the food comes from and what it does to you and 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 how you grow it um, and you know the rituals that go with 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 that particular food whether it is actually on the farm whether this um, this is the food that connects you with your ancestors you know um, um, so the ancestors actually speak the language of the food you know. And the opportunities that food uh, provides for healing and well-being of communities and so on. And that these foods which are grounded in our communities have really multiple functions. They're actually also conversation starters um, um, in a manner that you cannot you cannot start a conversation with hamburg on on uh, you know when eating your hamburger, but you can have a, a conversation when you you're drinking uh, traditional porridge and stuff like that. So so really the opening up the debate a little further to see what the plate actually offers to us. And Prof, how how are we able to link the conversation on decolonization of food with with language? Yeah. So um, that's a very good question um, uh, because, I mean, that's territory I, I love. Um, you see, for me, language is not just the mode of communication, like now we are using English. It's also the ways in which we establish relationships. It's also um, a medium of identity and history and, and so on. And it's dynamic. It's always changing. And Africa, we have is amazing opportunity of diversity of language. I mean, we have over 2,000 languages on the continent um, uh, which we can draw on at any one time, you know. And, and of course, that does not um, undermine the role of other languages that have come through the colonial experience. So if we, if we were to say that language is central to our being and who we are and so on. Then it, it is actually at the center of food systems. It is, it, we use language in production, in engaging, you know, with, with crops and so on. Um, and we carry, you know, um, histories, you know, through, through language. And of course, there are some times when you, you struggle with translability of certain terms of foods because they are very they are located in particular communities and even when you try to superimpose an english term or a portuguese term or a french term on that particular crop it is just an approximation of the possibility of that particular crop but when you use the term as used by communities then it really does speak to the history of, of that particular food. And I think that um, one of the weaknesses that we have currently is our inability to pay attention to the languages that we have. And we realize the challenge, I mean, with urbanization, with our educational system and so forth, we realize you know, that there are fundamental weaknesses of knowledge transfer. Um, but I think that we need to dignif dignify you know, our languages, and to realize the richness um, of those languages. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just give an example, a little example before I transition. Um, most recently, we translated the um, voluntary guidelines 
um, which really developed by the Food and Agriculture Organization FAO on food security and, and land tenure and so on into Kiswahili. They had never been translated before. They were always available in English, but now they are available now in Kiswahili, and we are challenging them to translate them to Igbo, to Yoruba, to Isiziwulu, to all African languages, as or many African languages, to Somali, and so on, so that they can actually speak directly to our farmers, and actually to move away from the text, the written text, to other forms of, you know, presentation, um, um, multimedia presentations, and so on. And I think that that is the way to do this, because if you take language as a metaphor, you know, language as a metaphor uh, beyond, of course, communication, then you can see what it does to food and to agriculture and to our full being, our complete being. So I, 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 I just want to recognize that we do need to pay attention to language. You can translate a word like, um, you say Ndoma, you know, mm -hmm. which... You know, I mean, I, I find it very difficult saying, I don't know whether it's arrow roots or whatever it is, but for me, even when I do Kiswahili, actually, we, I think we have adopted it in, uh, in Kiswahili dictionary. We have actually placed it now uh, in the Kiswahili dictionary uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Kiswahili word. Wait, so Ndoma is now Kiswahili? It is included. It is included as a, as a, as a form of... Um, like, a, like, a, like a synonym. Like a synonym. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. So, so, so these things are possible because language itself is dynamic, mm -hmm. eh? and you listen to you listen to the ways in which people are using words, and you incorporate them, and you you know you make it possible for them to communicate. So, um, and I would like to see you know because if you say even in Guashe when you say kiazikiku, you know it still feels kinda kinda. Or even for me, I mean, how do you translate mursik? Mursik is, you know, it's kind of sour milk amongst the Kalenjin and so on. You try to explain that in English. It's not, it's not um, fermented milk. Mm. It's not. Mm. It's not fermented milk. It's, no. It is treated. It is medicinal. It has a lot of water. But if you use the word mursik, then you can, you know, you really capture its essence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and also, also back to also seeds, how people in the village relate back uh, to their seeds. Absolutely. Also varieties, like I hear these potatoes called shangi. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, so how do you do, I mean, in, in farming, I mean, the seeds, um, the seeds come from the, the crops that you harvest and you reuse and you do all sorts of things. And, and you do need, you have those varieties and the varieties exist in local languages. Even when you try to translate the varieties, comes very, very problematic, you know. So I, I think that we need to pay attention to this and it does not weaken our ability to use the colonial language or the English language, which we have decolonized and, and owned. Um, but but to, to say that um, these are assets that we have on the continent and we can use these very, very effectively. Yeah, thank you so much for your perspectives. Over to you, Joe, as a writer at The Elephant. You also did a very interest piece, interesting piece on colonization and food and how the food we eat today, specifically Ugali, mm -hmm. was really influenced by colonization. So probably you can just share with us on how we can decolonize our plates, our farms and the kitchen. Uh, thanks for that. I think 
The conversation around food is interesting because for me, it's actually one of the base, the base of this conversation on imperialism, colonization. <clears throat> and for two reasons. One, question on survival, but then tied to that is a question of real and what, what is imagined. Uh, if you go back, you know, Europe, what, what is now called Europe in the in their medieval times, there are a couple of historical events happening in that particular space in society. One, of course, we know the the, the plague, ETC, which wiped them out. But then Europe was having an internal conversation within itself around religion. And they were fighting between the, the Christians, uh, the, the Muslims, and the Jews. It's happening in the 12th, 13th century you know, AD, and they were having a very internal conversation, and there was separation, use of usury. So with that, you have the beginnings of the idea of othering the human in terms of other subset species. Before that, you had civilizations coming where it, othering was not a subset species, but maybe because looking down on your culture. But this, you have the, 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 the inceptions of what now, what now we, call, we might call racism. And then something happens again in the 15th century. One, you have the discovery of the Americas by the West, particularly Columbus, which he lands in 1492. Tied to this, of course, you have the expulsion of the, 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 the Moors in the Iberian Peninsula. And then in the 15th, 1498, of course, Vasco da Gama lands in Mombasa. Then you have the, the expansion of you know, slaves, black slaves. So these historical events, which is a question of survival of this conversation within Europe for their own self-survival, creates a matrix of power. And this matrix of power happens in 1492 when Pope Alexander VI divides the world into two and says, Spanish have half, the Portuguese have half the, half the, half the continent. But on what you do is a question of survival. Now what happens is that this matrix of power creates this dichotomy between the white, white male Christian man and the rest of us for purposes of, of their own survival, which now comes with you know, food. You know, Vasco, you know, I mean, Columbus going to America, of course, you know, with the Incas and the stuff, you know, obliterating that whole population there. What happened in South America? Of course, the expulsion of very many African slaves to the, to the Americas. And you create this, this historical trajectory whereby, one, it becomes the whole world has been built for the survival of this one race. So they have created the whole world around them for their own survival based on their own internal conversations, right? And then are you, of course, coming closer to Kenya now with the colonial experience from, from 1902, you see such as uh, Elliot. The, the, the kind of acts they put in the, the Native Ordinance Act, the Land Acts, breast tax, where you know, if you're a man, you're supposed to pay for every woman in your, in your homestead, breast tax. And then Chloe Campbell writes this very well in his book, Race and Genetics in Kenya, where the particular foods that were said are, are, are bad for the civilization of the individual. So you create this matrix of power, and we're only within this matrix of power. So then how then does another conversation on food come, which is now the second part about the imagined and the real, is when we have conversations around not decolonization, but decoloniality, it's actually us, us people from the other worlds saying, we are not, we are real. So, you know, as Sankara says, if you want to look at colonization, look at your plate. So it's actually saying this is a real, this is a real commodity. And through having conversation about this real com commodity, we actually, it's an act of saying that we are not imagined people, we are not subhuman people, we are not a lesser human beings. So it's, it's an act of saying, okay, this whole 
idea, this 500-year idea of what now we call westernization, was actually imbued out of these two very fundamental ideas, their own survival and what is to them real or imagined. So when you come and look at in Kenya, where I mean, for the article I wrote, when you're saying that, I mean, you could actually see, I mean, Hatzegen would actually say in the people of the Embu that there's a particular cassava <laughs> that is grown in parts of Mount Kenya that is, makes this Embu man barbaric. And I'm from that part of the country, makes him barbaric. That's why these guys, they're not, they're not, they're not you know, subordinate to us. So tied to, to, to this conversation on this is also the conversation about what's the story? What is the story of this trajectory that we have to dial the way from what was happening within Europe in what they call the medieval times, the historical trajectories of these three forces, you know, the, the, the expulsion of the Moors in the Iberian Peninsula, the discovery of, not discovery, the, 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 you know, the colonization of the Americas, but the expulsion of, of black bodies to the Americas, creating a matrix of power. And it has different facets. This matrix of power, and it evolves over time. You know, locally, depending on different subcultures, you know that it 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 takes and pertains that its 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 work as a matrix of power is actually to to subject the object its object to a less than survival state. So in a sense, dehumanize you. But then to do that, it has to say that you're not you're you're imagined. Hence, you know, as V.W. Mudimbe says, the philosopher that in his book, The Imagination of Africa, that the idea of Africa first and foremost is a theological project. You know, that's what we call, that's what we call the dark continent. It's actually from the book of Revelations. So it's this, this, you know, culture beginning to imagine us as dark, as not, as not human beings, as subspecies, and through that, everything that we do. So it's our language, it's our food, it's, it's, it's how, we, how we interact with each other, it's our culture. So, but at the core of this argument, why food is important, because their expansion to the world was also because of food. I mean, just by particular reasons of how the geography of Western Europe in particular, how, I mean, I mean, it was, I think it was Bethany Cruz in a book that says that how British culture is bland, you know, the food is bland. So they, 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 they get everything else, you know, they get everything else from the rest of the world. So part, part of their expansion was actually to get food to, to feed their populations, isn't it? And you're seeing them going, the British Empire. And then it's, it's, an, it's a whole trajectory from, you know, from you're seeing this Spain, Portugal, uh, and then thereafter, British, and then, you know, as of now, the America, part of this trajectory of this, this, this Western civilization or this Western hegemon. So as we think about how do we, so it's conversation about decolonization, because decolonization is just, is just is, is, is based on a particular time of history, was decoloniality, what Anjoki said earlier, it's a way of being. So beginning to see the conversations of, we are, we are saying that there are actually ways of moving in the world, seeing in the world, away from this particular, this particular idea that was imbued in, from 1500 AD thereabout. And how do we do that? I think part of it is conversation, but then part of it is writing our history. Part of it is also telling the narrative correctly. Because we, we, we start the conversation, decolonization from... At least in Kenya, if we talk about it from 1885, the Shramali partition, but that's not it. We have to, we have to, we have to tie the dots. We have to, and at a more philosophical level, we can say it's actually not just colonizing space, which we have done, but colonizing time. Because why colonizing time is important that we don't have is because even that trajectory of how human history is written is incorrect. 
is incorrect. And once you you're you're subject to a particular time frame, you know, Joki came one hour late. But if we're not wow. supposed to meet, for, for, for instance, as an example, yeah. right? That, that's now that's now um, a fact. In the archive forever. Thank you. you know? Thank you very much. You know, as an example, right? Uh-huh. But if we're not to meet one hour, had we not agreed the time is two o'clock, mm-hmm. and Joki would have been one hour late. You get what I mean? Yeah. Because we agreed, and this this is actually, in my view, this is actually the 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 work we need to now do. How do we decolonize time within these conversations, even about food? So that we don't fall into the trap and Joki had to get very clearly saying there's no back to go back to. Yeah. You know, when we say well, we have to go back to our cultures, but it's a conversation of how do we frame human history? How do we tell the stories of human histories as unto themselves based on their own origins, that we have different origins and myths and stuff, and tell all these human histories not as a linear, linear trajectory as we've been told, but as intertwining and diverse human histories yeah. so that we begin to now focus. Now we can actually say, actually, now this conversation on food mm-hmm. is actually centered there. We can actually say, no, no, actually, it's fine that we are not. So if I eat maize, within, you know, so we don't, we don't get in this dichotomy of going back to culture, you know, so we, so we, because that, in a sense, once we do that, we get caught up in a time warp. So we need to really focus and say, is it, how do we decolonize time? How do we, and that's really telling the story of human history and saying that the story of time, for instance, isn't uh, isn't isn't what, for instance, we're taught in philosophy class, which is you know medieval, uh, sorry, ancient medieval, modern and contemporary thinking, that actually thinking happened in diverse spaces in diverse time frames, and reframing it as an African, I mean, which is central in this conversation, is actually doing what Shekanto Diop said that unless African ties civilization back to the Egyptian civilization and saying this actually this is our trajectory, this is how we think through our own civilization. Yeah. It's how we think through our own food processes that we come from. This is our trajectory of time and space yeah. in this place we call, you know, the world. And that yeah. culture itself is not um, something static. Precisely. It is not something that happened. It's actually, we are always constructing culture. We are always living it. Absolutely. Um, so we have urban culture. We have, you know, all sorts of things. Every day we are creating culture. Mm. And therefore the, the, the idea here also is how can we pick and how do, how, how do we get to pick and choose, mm. you know, in a holistic manner, you know, that, what, that which works best for us. Absolutely. I, I do think I want to add, um, just kind of drawing from, from, from threads um, in, in what Joe said and in what Professor said, uh, that tangibly, um, and, and Joe is right, it doesn't begin with what am I cooking and what am I eating. Mm-hmm. It begins with how am I centered in my own stories? Um, what, what, what are, what are, how, how did things get us here? Um, and then what decisions can we make with agency now uh, with regard to how we communicate? how and why we're going forward to each other, to our peers, how we have these kind of tension-filled conversations with the generations that have gone before, because they all hold history differently. And so if you ask uh, somebody my age uh, something, if you ask somebody 10 years older than me the same question, if you ask somebody 10 years younger, and even 10 years younger than that, um, you know, a question, we will all answer it very differently. Even if we were all Kenyans, even if we all went to the same schools, even if because we experienced time as different human beings. Um, and that, I mean, the same definitely goes uh, with, with with regard to what we eat and, and the stories about what we eat and why. Um, even, even if we just decided, and, and, and one of the things that have really been interested in 
with regard to decoloniality de and the black person is that um, we shouldn't fall into the trap of imagining that um, you know all of our achievements have to have been great grand achievements you know um, that man mundane things and the ability to focus on and 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 take joy and pride in mundane things like somebody can do an exhibition about when Chapo crossed from being mm. something that was occasional to something that people eat every day. There are kids who are born today that would never imagine that Chapo's were in one event in households, you know, but there are people who grew up where, you know, if you were told Chapo's being cooked, you mm. know, like the numbers were counted, you know, there were whole heists planned around Chapo's. And when, you know, people were like, in that house, chapels are being cooked. So it's like, oh, you go and distract Nani, somebody else, their hand is going into the window, which also tells us things about the way estate life used to work. Yeah. And it also tells us things about the ways in which community used to work and the ways in which children used to play together outside and about how Nairobi was built. And not even just Nairobi, because Chapo is not a Nairobi thing, yeah. you know. And even with regard to the Chapo itself, how is it that Kenyans owned it so holistically when... You know, it's a food that did not come. It's not indigenous here. Wheat is not indigenous here either, you know. So there's a lot of things, even if we just started with, let's look at a chapati and try to map a story of Kenya from there. It can be so beautiful and interesting. And it's not about Africans being number one. It's not about black struggles. It's just us trying to understand ourselves from our own perspective and um, giving ourselves time to excavate, to talk to one another. To, to to find uh, these stories and to look at these things as though they carry more meaning because they do. Um, and with a constant, and, and because like for me, the, the, the irreducible minimum is the dignity of the individual. We cannot eat off the backs of labors of people that are going, you know, un, unremunerated, um, you know, or poorly remunerated. And, and that is the, those are the contexts in which we've been forced to understand the ways that agricultural value chains work. And, and Prof said that when he was talking about cash crops, right? That foundational struggle between are we growing food for people abroad or are we growing it for ourselves? And the idea that the person abroad is a more worthy customer because they bring more cash into farmers' pockets and that the farmer then looks like a foolish person if they're growing mangoes for Kenyans to eat vis-a-vis -vis avocados for you know, people in, in, in Amsterdam. It even goes back to create safe food. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. like even because now that farmer is growing avocados that have to be, you know, grown in a particular way, watered a particular way, because somebody was thinking about the welfare of the people of Amsterdam when they were writing down all of those things. And so then when we come and ask ourselves, um, how come we don't get grade A avocados, we get the leftovers? How come we don't, and then how, what, are the, what are the missing policy documents and things like that? And do we even generate policy from a place where we view ourselves with love and with that kind of fierce determination that we will never again, you know, be considered second for eating leftovers? Right, yeah. regardless of how much other people are willing to pay for our things. Thank you so much, Njoki, Professor Angel, for making time to join us today. Indeed, the session has been really, really insightful. Next episode, we will go deeper into this conversation and we will focus on the role of states, the individual, and the society 
in decolonization of our food and farming systems. See you next time. Asante for listening in.